You're listening to the ADMS podcast. I'm Natalie Campbell, and in today's episode, we're revisiting a panel from the 2022 Future Automated Mobility Symposium titled Disability and Automated Mobilities. In this panel, ADMS researcher Dr. Tao Fan is joined by academics Professor Gerard Goggin and Iris Ma, industry expert Helen Lindner and guest speaker Orhan Karagoz to discuss the necessity of inclusive design to account for those outside the dominant narratives and the possible consequences of omitting these considerations. Fan, if we haven't uh, met before, I'm a research fellow at um, the Center of Excellence for Automated Decision Making in Society at Monash University. Uh, it's my great, great pleasure to be chairing the panel today um, on disability and automated mobilities. So our speakers will be exploring inclusive design as a necessary element of future automated mobilities, each of them taking as a starting point uh, mobility as a site where disability is lived and experienced. So we have four presentations, each going for about 10 minutes, uh, and then we'll all have the speakers, um, we'll have the speakers all presenting back to back with a collective Q&A and discussion at the end. So if you have a question for a specific speaker, please write it down and save it for that general discussion time. For those listening online, you're also welcome to ask questions for the panel. Uh, just pop them in the chat and we'll have someone who'll ask them to the room. So our first speaker, uh, our first presentation today, should I say, is from Jared Goggin and Kwan Sung Victor Zwang. Jared Goggin is a professor of media and communications from the University of Sydney. Jared has a long-standing interest in emerging technology and communication rights. His books include The Routledge Companion to Disability and Media, Disability and the Media, Disability in Australia, and Digital Disability. Kwansan Victor Zhuang, who's joining us online today, uh, is a Fung Global Fellow at the Institute for International and Regional Studies at Princeton University, and an international postdoctoral scholar at the Wee Kim Wee School of Communication and Information at Nanyang Technical University. His interests are at the intersection of disability, technology, sustainability, and the smart city. Please join me in welcoming Jared and Kwan Sang. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tao, and thanks to Sarah particularly for, I think, a long-standing interest and commitment to this area. It's fantastic to have this panel together and the colleagues from ADM who've made everything work uh, during the symposium. It's been great. So I just wanted to acknowledge the traditional owners, uh, custodians, the land that we're meeting on, the Woiwurrung and Bunwurrung language groups of this Kulin nation and to, to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm from the Gadigal lands, I live and work on the Gadigal lands in Sydney. Um, and I wanted to say greetings to, to Victor, <laughs> who's on the Zoom in Singapore. This is very much uh, part of our collaborative work and conversation with, with much of Vic's theorisation and conceptualisation, and we're writing a book on uh, disability and technology and politics. So. Um, disability has been a really well-promoted future benefit of uh, automated mobilities. Um, for instance, Google, when it launched its self-driving car in 2012, featured a blind Californian man uh, piloting that vehicle. So I, th I think since then, the imagining and designing of uh, automated cars, buses, trains, and other modes of transport are often referenced and engaged with disability. But I think a decade on, uh, it just seems, I think, to us that there's a kind of still narrow, perhaps paternalistic view, to pick up some of the language of yesterday, 
uh, on disability that dominates the discussion and development of, of the area of um, autom automated vehicles. And I think it's keyed into one of the key aims, aim number three in the report that was launched yesterday uh, that I think Emma Quilty led, uh, the colleagues to say, uh, around accessibility and health. It, uh, the report you know, makes out that there are a consistent set of visions for the transport industry. And I think disability features in this. But I think a lot of the mainstream work that seems to be going on in the area has little connection, um, we feel, with the wider field of existing and future disability mobilities. So that's, I think, fly, flowing from everyday use and innovation in, say, wheelchair mobility scooters, e-scooters, and digitally enabled micro-mobilities, as well as automated mobility um, technologies and data that you're finding in smartphones and locative technology uses of people with disabilities, featured in the image on the conference program and I think in the, the films being launched later as well. And I think one of the things I think that's a kind of big policy issue, and I was intrigued in this morning's discussion as well, so I think there's a bit of a disconnect between areas where there's been a lot of expertise, disability leadership and governance and participatory design. I'm thinking in areas I've kind of had a background probably in inclusive design, communication rights, in areas like internet, mobiles, communication technology, I think there's a lot of expertise, obviously, in transport and at uh, municipal, city, state government uh, levels um, that's not necessarily brought into these discussions about automated mobilities and things like smart cities, for instance. So I wanted to just give you a bit of the, a flavour of um, some of the kind of work and thinking we've been doing in this with the slides. So, you start with the slide in Singapore's an incredibly interesting place in many ways where I think disability is emergent, particularly in terms of the rights movement and as a digital inclusion issue that issues for older people have been really forefront. So seniors often feature in um, Singapore government digital inclusion initiatives, for instance. Disability is emerging in that and actually Vic is one of the people who's really doing the work in Singapore in that and also is uh, consults to SG Enable, the Singapore lead agency that does a lot of the work. So one of the innovations in Singapore that's been around for years in, in the slide that I've got here called the Green Man or the Green Man Plus uh, development. So there's a, a gentleman uh, at a, a crossing about to tap a card onto um, the traffic light. The purpose of that is, and you have to you know, be able to get hold of those cards, is that gives a three or a 13 second delay um, to that traffic light so a person can get across that. So you see some interesting um, developments in the infrastructure there. So going straight to looking at uh, the sort of at all other areas of perhaps automated mobilities, so uh, one of the things that Singapore's really invested in and in the university that I worked at, Nanyang Technological University, has got both industry and researchers brought together around this is the driverless car. So there's an image here of the kind of iconic Singapore gardens by the bay with its uh, sort of rainbow-coloured lights, it's, um, you know, kind of Jurassic Park towers and so on. And so one of the first fully operational self-driving vehicles in Asia was, was launched there. So there's a lot of this. This is a few years ago. Um, and so one of the things that uh, Victor and I did, his instigation was a really great idea. We did some field work and we went to the, the Land Transport Authority of Singapore. If you're even a tourist, I highly recommend it because there's a big diorama of Singapore. Um, and we went down and they've got an exhibition on reimagining urban mobility for autonomous vehicles. Um, so we booked a tour a few months ago. 
had a great guide. In fact, she used to be a regional uh, school superintendent, a retired person who did this too. It was super, super interesting. So I've got an image here from the website of this lush tropical landscape in Singapore with the autonomous vehicles just sort of put in the middle of that. Now, one, they've worked with a consulting firm to come up with some of the imaginary. So here you've got a cityscape. It looks like parts of Singapore uh, in some of the historic areas, actually, where you've got people, range of people kind of uh, walking uh, around, cycling, um, you know, carrying bags and so on. And one of the representations of disability, I think, that jumps out is uh, a person uh, in a wheelchair um, is being assisted by someone in that, um, moving along the street. So this is one of the kind of mixed urban environments that's in this particular exhibition. When you go into it, they've also got a vehicle here. It's a, uh, it's, this is a green-yellow kind of probably eight-seater bus, um, if I'm trying to audio describe this. And one of the interesting things about this, so it's one of the exhibits, is that it has um, accessibility features prominently um, you know, built into it. So there's two buttons. I've gone on to another side. There's two buttons. One of the buttons has got uh, the iconic uh, kind of wheelchair user on it. You would press and you'd be able to have it come down to you. Now, one of the interesting things when we're having a look at that is that that particular vehicle in the showcase doesn't really meet existing you know, standards uh, around this. And Singapore's done a lot of work in either public transport or in other kind of vehicle standards as well, I gather. So, um, you know, there's a lot more to be unpacked. I mean, we hope to be doing more research around this. So in some ways, this is about thinking about uh, and looking at and taking notice of some of the ways in which things are imagined, particularly in important um, exhibitions. You know, it might be a bit outdated, but I think you can see this often. And many of the representations that uh, we've written uh, a paper on this that we found have typically, the you know, a sort of trying to image of a lively city with different experiences, but often have one wheelchair user with someone pushing them or assisting them in that kind of process. So I think one of the things that um, is, you know, perhaps would really expand this frame of reference, we heard Norja yesterday uh, talking about this, uh, is some of what's going on in the area of disability mobility. So I think influenced by mobilities, a range of mobility research, there's different things that are going on. Now, one of them that's been very much uh, drawn to attention is the gig economy platforms. In Singapore, the Uber equivalent was called Grab. It's a kind of behemoth super app in Southeast Asia. And I've got a, um, an image here and a story from a blog in Singapore called Mothership. Uh, it's titled Singapore Grab Food Personnel Who Makes Deliveries on Wheelchair Shares His Story. Particularly during the pandemic, there was um, a lot of these kind of stories. So it's, uh, uh, a young uh, Malay woman, um, you know, in her about to do a delivery in her motorised uh, chair. Uh, now, there's now emerging research about the, you know, some of the experiences of workers with disability uh, in this area. One of our colleagues, Remy Hong, has written a piece interviewing uh, grab drivers with disability and getting some of the experience around that. But I think this is so. There's a whole discussion about that and how that intersects. But there's another area as well that I think comes out in some of perhaps uh, you know, the conflicts and issues that are starting to emerge in Singapore. So all sorts of e-scooters emerged in Singapore in the last few years. Uh, and Singapore government had to step in late uh, and do uh, what I think a colleague Ishra was talking about this morning, Queensland did, you know, regulate for e-mobility. So I've got here a chart that gives the, the taxonomy of active mobility devices. 
And there's a distinction made particularly between personal mobility devices, where you can ride them and the speeds upon which you can do that, and the personal mobility aids. It's a bit hard to see in this, uh, this grid of different uses, but the bottom that uh, is about personal mobility aids that can't go more than a 10 kilometres. Now, what's interesting about this is this has risen, one of the biggest issues that's raised in the public domain is people are, you know, using a mobility, personal mobility aid, a device that's associated with um, sort of assistive technology use of people with disability when they don't need it. That's good, that's me telling, don't talk for too long. Um, and so I've got an image of two instances of this. But, and to just maybe kind of conclude at this point, there's also other interesting things going on. So that uh, Vic found, uh, was in doing some research on YouTube, found the instance of a video here of the genre of digital vigilante video. So it's a video of, a, of uh, an e-scooter driver, and you can play the video, I won't do that. So SG Road Vigilante, going up Singapore's gridded by all these freeways, just hooning, as you would say in Australian parlance, uh, down the freeway uh, on, on, this, on his e-scooter, so a grab driver, going hell for leather, and the vigilante's doing a comment, you know, to, as filming it kind of thing. So one of, to just sort of maybe just briefly bring this to a close to say, um, there are a whole lot of things going on, right, in terms of mobilities, particularly I think around disability that helps us really open the frame and try and get uh, a better sense of what, what's this, uh, the sense in which people's journeys and movements, uh, you know, what they would desire, what their experiences are, what the access is. My fear is that this is not well integrated into this and that policy frameworks uh, work in different ways. And even in a regional hub for technology development that different interests are in, uh, uh, and automotive manufacturers and others, uh, it's hard to know how that transnational global media uh, kind of apparatus comes together as well. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you, Jared. I think um, what you're saying about sort of the disconnection as well uh, between the different sort of silos and expertise is super interesting. I'd love to touch on that more in the discussion. Um, so our next speaker is Helen Lindner. Lindner, sorry. Helen Lindner is the Chief Executive of Mobility and Accessibility for Children in Australia, MACA. Helen is driven to find new solutions for complex policy issues through research, collaboration, and cross-sector engagement, and is working with the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash to conduct human-centered research into understanding the transport needs of children with disabilities. Please join me in welcoming Helen. Thank you, and uh, it's great to be here. And I encourage anyone who has not had the opportunity to sit in the seat I'm sitting in, there's a spectacular view here that's just really um, brings a whole new light to the facility we're in. So I do encourage you to come and have a look. It's great to be here um, today, and I've really enjoyed uh, the, all of the discussions, presentations, and it's always the discussions that happen in between um, the panel sessions, which I think are really important. And I want to share a little bit of our story today and I guess what we've learned um, in establishing the not-for-profit MACA, uh, which we established in 2019. Um, it dates back to 2009 when my colleague Emma Clarkson and I somehow both entered the road agency in Victoria, um, Vic Roads, and uh, we come from very different backgrounds. I have an early childhood kindergarten teacher background, did my master's in public policy and management, so I guess I know how to play and open ask open-ended questions and I, you know, I guess I was trained very early on about always looking at what's possible but also valuing the voice of children. 
Um, one of my early roles at Vic Roads was to implement the child restraint road rules for Victoria. At that time uh, in Australia, it was still legal for a one-year-old to travel in the front um, seat of a vehicle with a vehicle seatbelt. Now, that's at a time when I remember the year after being at a celebration event where we were celebrating 40 years of seatbelt legislation uh, in Victoria, which was one of the first um, jurisdictions in the world to implement seatbelt legislation. And I just had to marvel that we had taken 40 years to do similar for children. And I guess what became more alarming for me is that when I was implementing the legislation, I started to wonder where children with disability were. They're invisible, they don't exist, we provide exemptions. What I became more astounded by was that nobody else seemed to care. Um, my early childhood training, um, I, I absolutely cared and uh, did do some work at that time in Victoria, um, which um, did inform government policy, went off to various other roles. And uh, fortunately in Australia, we now have the National Disability Insurance Scheme. As much as what we um, see here, criticisms about the scheme, uh, I was contacted by that scheme around 2016 saying they'd noticed some of the work that um, I had led in Victoria and they had a problem in Australia. They were noticing the problem. So Emma and I took a leap of faith and established MACA. Now, when we start thinking about areas why, why they don't exist, why they are invisible, is because the topic of disability doesn't just sit in the transport sector, it sits in disability, health, education, transport. It's very easy for no one to take responsibility. And if you are a parent of a child with a disability looking for support, um, if you're in government, they'll tell you to talk to your occupational therapist. Where does the occupational therapist get their information from? It is just a system that, as a, at a whole system level, is broken. Our systems and our... Um, Mandy Mee spoke yesterday about the Australian road rules. Um, they've been around for a while, since 1999, and it's a well-worn book um, with lots of rules in there, but the ability to um, look at a system and look at it from a whole system perspective when someone does not exist within that system starts to challenge everything we think we know. So a little bit about, I guess, I'll jump through a few of these slides. Um, what we do know, um, there has been a literature review in 2019 um, that showed in the past two decades, there was a previous literature review um, 20 years before that, that nothing has changed. Um, we've done a national survey with Curtin University as our baseline evaluation. We know driver distraction is significant. Um, World Health Organization, road safety is an issue. It's the, it's the leading cause of um, tra traffic injuries are the leading cause of death for children aged between 5 and 29. It's a significant global challenge. Children getting out of vehicle restraints, um, parents of children with disability, um, over half of them report they've experienced their child getting out of their um, vehicle restraint whilst the vehicle's moving, a further 10% into the road environment. That is a significant challenge that no one has looked at. Um, there are information gaps. There's no, until MACA was established, there was no central source of information. We're the, we're the central source of information for Australia. And of course, the global interest in our work is only increasing at the moment. And of course, um, parents report, 49% of parents reported their child is missing out on participation in the community because of their day-to-day -day transport needs not being met. So our approach is that we take a whole of system approach. So we are in there, getting our hands dirty at each of the layers, um, we are advancing the research. Given there is no evidence base, we need to build that evidence base. So working with 
Um, Monash um, Iris will be talking shortly um, about the PhD work that she's doing is absolutely fundamental to our work. But the ethnographic research is, is absolutely essential going into the homes of families to understand the lived experience and how transport impacts not just on the child with a disability, but the whole family. Um, the learnings from that work are just um, absolutely motivating. We're also stimulating industry investment. We found in Australia that there was so much industry that wanted to um, be providing and supplying products that have been available in other countries for many years. But due to that finger pointing from different agencies, very, very nervous environment for people to supply products from overseas in Australia. We've cleared the pathway for that now. We've just completed 54 crash tests of special purpose child restraints from around the world because we not only want the products here, but we want in real time today the best of what's available in the world, but we want to make sure that we're also influencing the design improvements, which Iris will expand on a little bit in her presentation. Evidence-based training, we've published the first ever training for allied health professionals. Talk to your allied health professional. There has been no training, none of their formative training. So we now have an online training course. We've got over 200 allied health professionals enrolled in that today. And the first week of that training is all focused on road safety. What is the challenge? And how do we then deliver family-centred practice? How do children have access to motor vehicle transport plans? Um, again, it's just fantastic to have that work out there. Um, and our funding, um, didn't come from the transport sector initially. It came from the disability sector. It's now under the Australian Government Department of Social Services. We now do get funding from the transport sector um, because we are finding ways to help them understand where from a policy perspective, uh, um, where from a strategy perspective, where do they need to put their time and resource so they can be on our learning journey. And improving knowledge about um, the restraint systems is very much um, linked to our crash testing program. I do want to take a moment, though, because I really would like the voice of some children in um, the session that I'm sharing with you now. And this is just two little snippets from um, our, some of our online videos that we have on our website. So you're very welcome to visit our website to see that. But I'll just share these two snippets with you. The seat, because she hasn't got the thing, so she puts it. And then she normally hangs around the head bit on the seat and then stands up. Um, and then she starts shaking, biting, yeah. How, how do you feel when that happens? Um, well, kind of worried because if, like, a window is going to smash or the chair is going to break or something. <laughs> Now, this is um, Hayley and um, Erica's mother. Cool guard, it's called, for the seatbelt for Erica because she was constantly getting in and out of the seatbelt. It wasn't the best solution, but that was the only solution that was, that was given to us because Erica could still slide out underneath the seatbelt and what they call it submarining. And then the lap sash would then catch her under a under a neck. So I think the interesting um, thing when we think about vehicles and who they're designed for, in general, we've, we've been retrofitting children into vehicles for a long time. The seatbelt, the evolution of the motor vehicle, and you know, I guess a lot of my motivation around setting up MACA was seeing what was happening in the future landscape because I was involved in a lot of those policy discussions. And I think we heard about Podman um, and those sort of personas yesterday that 
Um, if you're a family of a child with a disability, you don't exist. You are non-existent in the narrative, the discourse. Um, the, the voices need to need to be heard and we need to learn from that because we've got windows of opportunity when we often redesign and we think about how, how we design um, a service system that supports the needs of all users is really hard work. So we tackle, we do look at the products, we look at the standards. Already we've got changes happening to the Australian standard. Um, I sit on about three standards committee. We've had changes to legislation um, in three um, of our states and territories. So we work very closely with the regulators and we take them on our, our learning journey. So at the moment we have some learnings from our research where we can translate that, we're doing that real time. We then engage um, with overseas manufacturers of products, um, overseas government regulators. We're going to Germany shortly to present at a conference. And again, we're going to be meeting with standards people. We're going to be meeting with industry. We're going to be learning real time from what that looks like in Germany because a lot of what we receive in Australia comes from here. So I know I'm probably running to my, my time. So I, I'll quickly move through my last couple of slides. And a common theme we hear from families that we visit is it shouldn't be this hard. Surely we're not Robinson Crusoe here. And this is from really educated families sometimes. It is a really hard space to be. Children today can take three weeks to three years to receive a product they need today. And this is where our National Disability Insurance Scheme says, we're happy to fund, but no one's done the work to enable these families to get that ease of access to products that they need. And they're the gaps and barriers that we're really motivated to close in real time now whilst we influence that future landscape. So I think I just want to end on this note and um, I think the tragedies that come from what happens today, um, this one's quite poignant to share today because the New South Wales coroner is um, publishing their findings into the death of Riley Shortland and his transport worker, um, Rachel Martin, who were both tragically killed in 2017 when Riley got out of his child restraint. And they're on a busy highway and um, Rachel followed Riley out onto the road and they were both hit by a truck and killed. Now that should never happen. Um, that is what we don't want to see happen into the future. I didn't need to get the big folder um, to do the expert witness report to know where the system um, did not meet um, either of their needs. Um, we need to do much better as a community uh, and that's the approach we take. It's very much a collective effort to address these really systemic challenges. Thank you. Thank you so much, Helen. Uh, really, really brilliant work that you're doing there. Um, now it's my pleasure to introduce Iris Marr. Uh, Iris Marr is an anthropologist currently working towards her PhD in the Emerging Technologies Lab at Monash. Her research examines the theme of mobility and emerging forms of transport. She utilizes ethnography to understand the lives of families of children with disabilities and their transport needs. Thank you, welcome Iris. Thank you, Claire. Um, I'd just like to thank you all for taking the time to be here today. Um, I think this is an incredibly important session and I'm really looking forward to the discussions we'll have later around disability and future automated mobilities. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we meet today. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So today I'm going to kind of follow on a little bit from what Helen has already spoken about. So it's focusing on families of children with disabilities in Australia. And I think the importance of this session and the symposium generally um, is to highlight those who might not be included in the dominant future mobility visions and narratives. 
Um, so here, I want us all to begin to consider how do we include children with disabilities and their families in visions of the future. So following on from uh, Helen's wonderful presentation, she already highlighted some of the issues and problems around transportation for children with disabilities. Um, so during this research, I really witnessed the frustration of parents trying to find appropriate and safe transport options for their children. Um, this was really due to a lack of information about the safe transportation of children with disabilities, but there are also very few products on the market that work for them and that are safe. So in conducting this research, um, we had a variety of children with different disabilities, different age groups, and they were located across Australia. But what connected these children was that their disability impacted their transportation, particularly their ability to participate in safe travel inside the car. So we found that standard car seats on the market did not really meet the needs of children with disabilities. Then they really struggled to find information on other available products, um, primarily because special purpose car seats are not accounted for in the Australian standards. But as Helen mentioned, you know, that is starting to change. So for context, in Australia, children under the age of four must travel in a rear-facing or forward-facing car seat. Children between the ages of seven and 16 are required to use a booster seat or adult seatbelt when traveling in the vehicle. Children with disabilities might not be able to use the standard car seat that you can just walk into the shop and purchase. Um, and they also have additional needs that require them to have maybe postural support, or they might need additional harder to open buckles to prevent them from getting out of their car seat. And we just saw kind of some of the tragedies that can happen when children get out of their car seats. So they kind of open the restraint on their car seats for a variety of reasons. Um, in some cases that the restraint is actually just quite uncomfortable, it might be irritating for them, or in some cases they just don't wanna be in the seat and they just wanna explore. But when this happens, their safety is really jeopardized. And it's also dangerous and distressing for the parents or carers that are driving in the car. And when they become aware that their child is out of their seat, like they turn around and their child is gone, like, um, so one mother actually described how this meant that she couldn't even leave her house during the day. She had to have somebody with her when she wants to go out and run errands. Fortunately, um, the travel experience for both parent and the child changes dramatically upon finding an appropriate product. So one of our participants actually described it as life-saving. Um, this is because special purpose car seats are built with their additional needs in mind. Um, for example, there might be adjustable extra leg room um, to account for longer legs or growing children. Um, there's a swivel base that can be added to the bottom of the car seat that can allow for easier access when placing the child into the car or taking them out. Um, headrests that allow for body contouring um, and just extra padded straps. But it's interesting to note that the standard car seats that are, you can go into the shop and buy are designed more so for safety during the accident, and whereas the special purpose car seats are really designed for safety in an everyday sense. And so through talking to families about their everyday experience of travel, it really highlighted the nuanced issues around safety, information, and access to products. So in response to this, I did additional research that I sought out designers in Australia um, who are really focused on childcare seats. And while much of this design takes place outside of Australia, there are some small companies here in Australia 
but many designers in this area were not willing to talk to me or actually unable to talk to me because of um, their organization's contracts, NDAs. So as a result, those who I did speak to um, had either simply left the industry, were solo consultants, or retired. Um, so while these designs are actually considered privileged information, designers that I did speak to said that generally the design hasn't changed in the last 10 years, and into the future they don't really predict it to change too much. One designer that I spoke to um, when we were talking about the inclusion of children with disabilities in car seat design described it as difficult or too niche of a group. Um, so this is an unfortunate outlook when designing products for children with disabilities. Um, but they also mentioned that one of the, the Australian standard, 1754, was actually one of the biggest influences on their design process. Um, because it's one of the strictest globally and it impacts how they design because children with disabilities and their needs aren't actually accounted for in the standard. So as a result, um, a lot of special purpose car seats are imported um, and because they're not accounted for in the standards, this leads parents to really question their safety. Um, but for context, some of them have been approved for use in Europe and the United States. But because in Australia there's an uncertainty around them, um, medical professions and parents are really concerned about their safety. The theme of today's panel asks us to consider inclusive design, its benefits and its consequences if this doesn't occur. Um, Armie Hamray and Kelly Fitch state that technologies, architectures and infrastructures are often designed and implemented without committing to disability as a difference that matters. And I think that's kind of what we've seen today with the car seat industry in Australia. Um, so inclusive design also means more than just the product. Um, the Australian standards really need to account for these products. There needs to be clear information about the products available and their safety to use. Um, so for families with children with disabilities in Australia, they actually require multiple agents to act together. So at present, if they're using an imported car seat, they need to have an exemption for this. Um, special purpose car seats are also quite expensive. They can be upwards of $10,000, um, meaning the NDIS also plays a role in trying to fund this. And now more than ever with our globalized society, you know, you can have people go online and purchase any car seat, but that's not guaranteed to be safe in the Australian context. So I think um, Emma or Helen's role in MACA has been incredibly important that as a non-governmental organization, they can operate across industry and across the standards um, and in, within government that it's just an incredibly amazing thing that they're doing. Um, and I think just to touch a little bit on future mobilities, um, the report that was launched yesterday on automated decision-making in transport mobilities states that automated mobilities is treated as it is synonymous with an increase in accessibility for groups who have low to zero levels of mobility, but the details of how these technologies will increase accessibility is missing. And I think um, what I've spoken about today kind of fits into that nar narrative that what, how do these technologies work and increase accessibility? Um, 
Additionally, recent research from the Monash University Accident Research Centre shows how parents in Australia who travel in rideshare vehicles report lower uh, rates of child car seats. And some of the reasons they included are the unavailability of a car seat, and they're just simply traveling a short distance. They were not required to use one, or the parent did not have them with them. So you can imagine if you're using a rideshare and you're trying to bring a car seat around with you, but then specifically for children with disabilities who might be using a special purpose car seat, it's large, it's heavy, um, not easily transferable between vehicles. Um, Laura Herman and Molly Bloom argue that technology can imagine a utopian future that is either inclusive or exclusive of people with disabilities. And I think the lived experience gathered in this research um, helps illuminate the types of problems that are faced today by children, of ch by families with children with disabilities. And I think this panel highlights that starting in the lives of people and physical sites where disability is lived, we can begin to account for their inclusion in future automated mobilities. Thank you. That's brilliant. Thank you, Iris. Uh, and now it's my pleasure to welcome our last speaker, uh, Orhan Karagos. So Orhan is a Turkish Australian and blind person. Uh, most of his life was spent growing up in broad meadows amongst the Turkish community. He completed a PhD in anthropology last year at the University of Melbourne and has been working there uh, teaching anthropology since 2013. Please join me in welcoming Orhan. Good afternoon, everyone. Now, before I begin talking to you all, I would first like to thank Professor Sarah Pink and the other organizers of this panel for inviting me to speak. My name is Orhan Karagöz, but please just call me Orhan. I am Turkish-Australian and a blind person who has spent most of his life in broad meadows amongst the Turkish community. Last year, I have completed my PhD in anthropology at the University of Melbourne. Since 2013, I am teaching anthropology at this institution. I was born with Labour's hereditary optic neuropathy, and therefore I am legally blind. I can only see less than 10 degrees, and have not experienced any change to my eyesight throughout my life. To describe to you all what this entails, my eyesight is like a small window in what it feels like the top right hand corner of my eye, which is filled with moving colors and shadows. I do not have any useful or meaningful vision outside of my body. Due to, ironically, due to the fact that I wasn't born as a totally blind person, I was not perceived as being qualified to be trained in Braille. I therefore rely on Braille. I therefore rely on my two senses. I rely on my senses of touch and on my sense of listening. I have particularly relied and still rely on my senses of listening when I'm moving through different environments to make sense of them and to understand the moods of different people. I use these senses in my academic, social, and in my daily life. To use my senses effectively, 
I rely on technology. As a blind person, I rely on technology in three spheres of my life. In my academic life, when I'm traveling and orienting myself. On roads, footpaths, and when accessing public transport. Now, when I leave home or go outside, I use a cane to alert and avoid to, to avoid obstacles and to alert me to obstacles, so I use a cane. Further, it alerts me to cracks on the footpath, uh, footpath edges and stairs and so on. It is also a signpost of my disability and my blindness to other pedestrians and motorists. And hence, most of the time, it enables me to avoid accidents. Having said that, sometimes I do have accidents. This is because people are not watching where they are going. They either step on my cane or trip over my cane. Ironically, this is connected to technology. How so? Well, when people are walking, they are really sucked into their iPhones or indulging their iPhones and they do not watch where they are going. And therefore, they step on my cane or trip over it. And I, and this is kind of like unfair because as blind people, since the time of our consciousness, we are constantly being taught to pay attention to our environment or what's being around us. Whereas people with full vision don't do this or they're not being taught to do this. They take this into granted. Of course, this is a bit outside of what we are discussing, but just have this as a side note, which, which, which we, if you want to, we can talk about that later, a bit more later. Um, to me, using cane is like an extension of my body. It is an extension of my arm. When I use a cane, I do not really think about it anymore. I use it unconsciously. Using a cane for me is a form of technology, as it provides me the means of as it provides me with the practical means to travel independently and safely. Therefore, when I think about technology, I do not just only think about computers. Robots and iPhones, but but when I think about technology, I also think about canes, wheelchairs, and Braille typewriters. Though Braille typewriters are now being computerized, and Braille can also be now also now be can be applied to computers as as well. Though, like computers, canes also have their setbacks and limitations as well. But sometimes when I'm walking on roads, they could either get stuck on the cracks of the footpaths or the gaps between the fences. Now, as I have mentioned to you earlier, I can also encounter accidents because people are not watching where they're going. The, the, the effective use of cane is, deter, is, is determined by people's awareness and attitudes towards blind people. Now, when I'm walking on roads, I also rely on the audio signals on the traffic light buttons when I'm crossing the roads. Now, as you would all know, uh, when the traffic lights changes into green color, the, the rhythm of the, of the audio signals tends to go faster and its mode changes. Though sometimes they do not work properly or they do not work at all. This has happened to me a couple of times. When I'm at the traffic lights, after pressing to the traffic button, 
If the, if the rhythm of the ODF signal or its mode doesn't change in a few minutes' time, most likely it is a sign that the, that the ODF signal is not working properly. In that case, I need to wait for someone to approach or ask their help, or yell at the drivers or the motorists on the road asking them if it's safe to cross. Now, in the last two or three decades, uh, using public transport has become much easier for blind people to access. This is particularly to do with the fact of the, this is particularly to do with the introduction of the automatic speakers or announcement systems on trains and trams, where they announce the, where they make the announcements of the stops and stations before the arrival. Though sometimes uh, automatic announcement systems do not work properly, as they do not make the announcements consistently, and sometimes they make the wrong announcements. Further, when I am on trams or trains, when it, particularly when it is crowded, and when people are talking aloud or listening to loud music, sometimes I am not able to hear the announcement. Therefore, I take a couple of actions. I memorize the stops and the stations before my location, and I count them. Sometimes uh, trams and trains can stop in between stations and stop due to technical issues, and this confuses me. To avoid this confusion, I try to listen to the automatic uh, audio signals on the doors of the trams and trains. Like when they open and close, they make a sound. If I don't hear that sound, it's most likely the trams and trains have been stopped in between the stations or the stops due to technical issues I have mentioned before. Uh, if I get suspicious, if I think it's a stop, I may double check that with other passengers. I may ask other passengers. Sometimes when I'm boarding trams or trains, I may also ask the drivers to make an announcement as well. I particularly do this when I'm using buses because buses unfortunately do not have any automatic announcement systems yet. Further, uh, I am going to be trending using iPhones uh, to access apps which will which will alert me to next stops and stations before the arrival by, through, by using iPhone, by using my iPhone. Having said that, iPhones do have their limitations as well. Unfortunately, my iPhone some, does not, 10% of the time, my iPhone does not recognize my face. As you all know, iPhones have facial recognition. Uh, this is because the extra layer of uh, eye recognition has been removed from my iPhone. Due to my blindness, I cannot make a direct contact with my iPhone. And because of, the, because of this 10% of the time, uh, facial recognition, recognition fails. And when this happens, I need to enter the numbers of my password on the trans and trams which I do not like doing, because other people then can hear my passcode. Therefore, I need to use an earphone. But this has its setbacks as well, because when you use an earphone, you may not always able to clearly understand or hear the announcements, or you may not be able to hear people talking to you. To get your attention, they may need to touch you. Touch you. So this is another limitation. When I'm... Another, there's also another program called IRA, 
which helps people. It's called IRA, and, you, and you, it, it enables you to identify your surroundings and your environment. When you're in a different place or in a class or on a road, like if you don't know where you are, if you want to know what's around you, you give them a call, and from the camera of your phone, they will look at it and tell you, uh, you're here, this is what's around you, this is what you should and should not do. That, that's what they will tell you. And you should walk this way or that way. However, this has its limitations. How so? Well, sometimes these people are too busy because this service is in the United States and, and a lot of people use this service. Uh, second, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, the internet doesn't work either. Or Siri can also fail as well. I suppose I don't need to explain what Siri is. You will all know that. So it can also have a glitch and well, and it can also fail. In that case, I need to help. Uh, I need to ask other people to help me. To sum it up, um, technology does has its limitations. Like even when we are traveling independently, we cannot fully rely on technology. Why? Because technology is made by humans. And like humans, it has its setbacks, it has its failures, and it has its limitations. And therefore, sometimes humans make the mistake of having total faith in technology, thinking, ah, oh, it has replaced human interaction. Well, surprise, surprise, it has not. Because at times it can fail, and when it fails, we need humans to repair them, or humans to fix them, or redesign them. So technology doesn't really re replace human inter interdependency. We think it does, but doesn't really. And that's the experience that I have when I'm traveling around, either on public transport or when I'm walking around. In fact, a couple of years, a few years ago, there was an incident in the United Kingdom. This was a guy who was driving an automatic computerized car, and he was watching Harry Potter while the car was going to the location that he just entered. But due to a computer glitch, uh, there was a problem with the car and had a severe accident. And he died, unfortunately, he died in an accident. So technology does has its, has its limits. Yes, it provides, inter, it provides independence and it enables disabled people to be, be self-sufficient. But we must not definitely ignore the part that we, as humans, we still depend, one, depend on one another. And that's all that I would like to say. Thanks. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Ohan. Uh, we've now got some time for questions. Uh, if anybody in the audience has a question, please raise your hand. Um, uh, but I guess uh, the one thing that's really striking with me that connects with um, uh, something that was raised on the previous panel by Vicky, it's like uh, most of the time when it comes to automated mobilities or even the future of mobilities, automated or not, the, what people are asking for is nothing more complex than for it just to work. <laughs> you know, just for the existing infrastructure to work. And I think all of your anecdotes that you gave then, Orhan, were like very striking in that sense. But also like just across all of the examples of our speakers. Thanks for listening. You can watch the full recording of this session on our YouTube channel by visiting admscenter.org slash YouTube. <laughs>